You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Seated and good morning to 1120. It is December. It is the beginning of Christmas season. Uh, We're starting to sing some Christmas songs. The Christmas trees are up behind me. So you can probably guess which passage we're going to together today. That's right. Noah's Ark, Genesis chapter 5. So if you're a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me please to Genesis chapter 5. Should be easy to find. Fifth chapter of Genesis. We're going to look at just two verses in this chapter and then, then jump ahead to the next chapter. So Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 28. We're going to jump in right in the middle of the part that we normally skip, the, um, the descendants, the genealogy. So we're going to hit right in the middle of this because there's some great foreshadowing that's already going to happen here in the genealogy. So Genesis chapter 5, look at verse 28 with me. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. So if you're here last week, we saw the fall in Genesis chapter three. We saw the cursing of the ground. We saw the judgment against the serpent, against Adam, against Eve. And so we're referring back to that. So out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief. Uh, Even the name Noah is very similar to the Hebrew word for rest. This one will bring relief. This will bring rest from our work, from our striving, from the painful toil of our hands. Okay, jump ahead just one chapter. Look at Genesis chapter six, verse five. So just a few verses later. Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. There are three things this morning that I want us to see in in these passages and to connect the dots from Genesis chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, connect the dots to Christmas. Note takers, here's the first thing. There was wickedness in all directions. There was wickedness in all directions. Sin spoils what God has made good. So humanity, namely Adam and Eve, we saw this last week, but if it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been you and I, rejected the perfection of God's plan. And in the rejection of God's plan marred forever the the actual beauty of God's creation. That the things that God made in order that we might benefit by them actually are spoiled now as a result of our sin, of our wickedness, of our rebellion. And so we see in this passage here, in fact, go back and look at chapter six, verse five again. Verse five of chapter six is one of the main verses of this entire narrative in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this wickedness, this sin, this rebellion was expressed, if you will, in in four directions. First of all, externally. You see this in verse five. The Lord saw. 
The Lord saw the wickedness of man. He was able to see on the outside the wickedness of, of man, and it was great and in all of, of the earth. In other words, the evidence of man's wicked actions were not just hidden away. It was obvious in the daily rhythms of life that there was wickedness. Just today, we can look around at the daily rhythms of our lives and see wickedness all around as well. Wickedness, which is now there because of the entry of sin, wickedness cannot be concealed. Wickedness always expresses itself. In other words, wickedness always bears fruit. It's a bitter fruit, but fruit nonetheless. Wickedness always grows up. It always grows out. It eventually is seen externally. So we have externally, but also we see that wickedness is seen internally or is expressed internally. God saw not only in verse five, the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, so visibly or outwardly, but also internally. Look at verse five again, the rest of verse five. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Three words right here, they're all internal words. Intentions, inside. Thoughts, inside. Heart, inside. All internal has it been a while since you've read Tom Sawyer? Uh, remember when, when Tom Sawyer was in a lot of mischief, of course, uh, his Aunt Polly uh, calls him in and, and says to him, what, what is this that you have done? And Tom Sawyer said, well, the devil made me do it. He made me do it. Aunt Polly grabs him by the ears, probably so he can hear a little bit better. And she says, that's no way to escape from what you have done. In other words, Christians, it's the same for us, really. The devil doesn't make us do things. The devil may entice us to do things, but he can't make us sin. I'll refer you to the screen behind me in James chapter one, verses 14 through 15, where the New Testament tells us, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to, to death. It brings forth death. In other words, you can write this down. Every sin is an inside job. All of our sin this week is gonna start right here inside of us. It begins with, with us as an internal wickedness that we struggle with. Every sin begins on, on the inside. This is exactly what James is telling us. We're enticed by our own desire. There's a lot of firsts in, in chapter four. So if you're in chapter six, just go back maybe one page, look at, at, at Genesis chapter four with me. A lot of firsts that are happening here in Genesis chapter four. Uh, Chapter four, verse four, we got the first sign of jealousy. Chapter four, verse four, you have the first outburst of anger. Of verse eight, we have the first murder. Verse nine, we have the first lie. Verses 13 and 14, we see the first expressions of self-pity. Verse 19, you have the first polygamy. Verse 24, you have the very first act of, of vengeance. But what you don't see in chapter four is the serpent. There's no slithering serpent moving along around Cain and among Lamech and seducing them and tempting them to sin. No, mankind no longer needs a talking serpent because the prompting to sin is now all internal. So wickedness is external, internal, but also it's continual, continually the wickedness in all directions. Verse, verse five, one more time. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. Your Bible might use the phrase there all the time. It's constant. It's, it's unending. The, the violence, the wickedness is constant. It is without end. There's always been evil abounding. Violence and war and, and, and hatred without ceasing. In fact, you can go back to the, the Babylonian Hittite battles of 1600 B.C., 
3,600 years ago, and you can, you can trace from 1600 BC until the year 2023, and in all those years of human history, there's only been 242 years of peace, where there's been no war upon the face of the planet. That's 7% of modern human history, meaning 93% of our history is filled with war and violence and wickedness. 7% of our history is found in peace. The rest of it is found in this continual violence. There's no need for me today to, to trot out to you the, the statistics of, of violent crime in our society and in any society around the world today. I mean, violence and, and crime is so commonplace that the cities here in America, many cities, thankful not Waco, but many cities here in Waco aren't trying to fix it. They're just trying to accommodate it. So wickedness has been continual ever since Genesis chapter three. So you have internally, externally, continually, but fourthly, globally. How about verse five? One more time. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. In other words, sin is not something that is limited to some locality. We've just experienced this a few years ago. Sin is like a pandemic. I mean, it covers everything. It's like a contagion that spreads throughout all of humanity, separating not only man from God, therefore we need a redeemer, therefore we need a serpent crusher, but it also separates man from man. It's not only this vertical separation, but this horizontal separation as well. So the great conflict, when sin was introduced, is behind every conflict we have today. Every argument in the kitchen between a husband and a wife, every dispute between a teenager and his parents or her parents, every conflict in the Middle East, the war in the Ukraine, every act of anger, every act of violence, every act of revenge, and so on. What's the basis for all of this? Was the fact that sin has entered the entire world and its impact is undeniable globally. Genesis chapter seven. Pick it up here in verse six. Genesis chapter seven, verse six. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. This is the part of the story of Noah that we're very familiar with, probably. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life. Look how detailed this is. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep, uh, of the great deep burst forth. In other words, water coming from the upside, but also the windows of heaven coming from the downside were opened as well. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock, livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life and those that entered male and female and all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Here's the second thing if you're taking notes today. God rightly expresses his judgment. The waters coming from the deep and the waters coming down from heaven begins this process of, of judgment. And the judgment of God, it comes across here. You see it very plainly, but it's a right judgment. It's a correct judgment. It's an appropriate judgment. In this story, often, you know, we, we've kind of remembered this and harkened back to, to childhood and we hear about, about Noah and his heart, but it's really a very heavy story. In fact, some of these words are so heavy, you kind of have to bow down underneath them. It comes in and again and again. We saw this earlier in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, 
where God says, I will blot out man. In that same chapter, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. That same chapter, Genesis chapter six, verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. So God sends torrential rains and everything on the earth is going to die. This is not mythology, by the way. I was told by my undergrad religion professor that this was a myth, but God doesn't judge with a fairy tale. I mean, he's gonna use the rains, the water of the deep to truly, actually, really judge people. And this is not far-fetched at all. God controls the waters. God controls the waves. God controls the the wind and the rain. He did back in creation, in in Genesis chapter one, he ordered the space and the place of the waters. And if you want to, you can just mentally jump forward with me if you want to, to the gospels, when Jesus is on the deck of a boat in a storm, And what was it that caused the disciples to gasp on the deck of that boat? They said, who is this man? That he even speaks to the waters and they obey him. So God has fashioned the waters in creation and now he is using those same waters to to overflow as an act of judgment upon sinful, wicked people. And Highland is devastating it would be really good to note at this point in the sermon that God does not take any delight in the death of the wicked. Scripture tells us that. Ezekiel uh, chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 33. God doesn't rejoice in in, in the death of of, of humanity. So don't picture God at all enjoying this, not in, in the least bit. God loves people. God loves his creation. But listen, you can write this down somewhere. God takes no pleasure in judgment, but neither is he indifferent to our sin. God doesn't rejoice in in judgment. He doesn't rejoice in this destruction, but he can't be indifferent to our our rebellion, to the wickedness that's all around. God cannot be indifferent to, to your defiance or my defiance. He can't be indifferent when you and I reject his mercy when we choose sin and we refuse to obey his commandments. You see, if you see God in this perfect balance, and you should, of 100% love, but also 100% holiness, if we see God in that way, we realize that God wants us to live because he loves us, but he also can't ignore our sin because he's holy. You can write this down also if you'd like. We think little of the mercy of God when we think nothing of the judgment of God. You see, there is no understanding of the true mercy of God outside of understanding the judgment of God. We have no idea how merciful God is unless we believe in and understand the, 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 the biblical understanding of the judgment of God. It's, it's only in the light of God's right judgment that we can truly understand and celebrate the vastness of, of his mercy. There's a lot of people in our nation today that do, they don't wanna hear about the judgment of God. Maybe some people in the church today don't want to hear about the judgment of God. There's some mainline churches in our nation that have stopped preaching on the judgment of God. But when we refuse the understanding of God's judgment, refuse the idea of God's judgment in which his justice was expressed toward our rebellion, then we find ourselves saying things like this. I'm not that bad of a person. We find ourselves saying things like, you know, if Jesus was going to pick 12 people, he surely would have included me in that. 
You see, here's, here's the problem. Not wanting to think about God's judgment is actually an appeal to our self-righteousness. Not wanting to believe in God's judgment means that we want to be the judges ourselves. And friends, this is a very dangerous way spiritually to live life. You see, God's mercy is so much sweeter, so much more enjoyable in the light of the fact that it comes from a God of justice. So the highest point in all human history where God's justice and God's love meet, God's mercy and God's justice meet, is the cross of his son Jesus, which leads us to our third point, which leads us to Christmas. Genesis chapter seven. Look at verse 17. We'll pick up where we just dropped off. Genesis chapter seven, verse 17. So the flood continued 40 days on the earth. Uh, The waters increased and they bore up the ark and it, the ark, rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were were, were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, uh, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Third thing, God, in his mercy, provides an ark. Even though judgment was all around and rightly appropriated, God in his mercy provides an ark. And did you see who shut the door? Back in chapter seven, verse 16, it's the Lord who shuts the door. It's the Lord who shuts the door to the ark. So we've heard it wrong our entire lives. This is not Noah's ark, this is God's ark. He is the one who planned this ark. He is the one who provided for this ark at the right time time. And it was no ordinary boat. Uh, You can see back in chapter six, we don't have time today, but back in chapter six, verses 11 through 18, God gives the specifics to Noah on how to build the boat. The boat needs to be 450 feet long. It needs to be 75 feet high. It needs to be 45 feet wide. I mean, that boat is so big that you can put 596 boxcars of a train into it. You could put 50,000 animals of an average size and only fill up 37% of a boat like that. In fact, it would be 6,400 years before a boat that size would be built again uh, with the SS Eastern Shore in 1868. I mean, it's a big boat. But there's something more happening here than just some amazing ship. What you have here, of course, is an expression of the patience and the mercy and the rescue of God. We see the mercy of God because he's been giving warnings that this was going to happen. We skipped most of the genealogy, but earlier you get to see that Enoch was the great-great-grandfather of Noah. And we know from the New Testament in Jude, verses 14 and 15, that, 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 that Enoch was actually a man of, of, of proclaiming judgment. He was a man that that, that preached that judgment was going to come. He he warned people about the approaching judgment of God. Then you come to Methuselah. 
probably a recognizable name to many of you here. Methuselah was the grandfather of of Noah. Methuselah lived for 969 years. Methuselah's name in Hebrew means this, after I die, it comes. His name in Hebrew means after I die, judgment. So for 969 years, when people called out his name, they were shouting out loud, after you die, it's going to come. After you die, there will be judgment. And I think, actually, I just think this, don't don't build your salvation along this. I just think this, that the very day Methuselah died was the day that the waters began to break up from the deep and to fall from the top, which is why we get this such exact date of the certain day and a certain month. In fact, you can, you can use some, let's do some Bible math here. Any math majors can help me with this. Let's just look at this very quickly. Methuselah was 187 when he had Lamech. That's chapter five, verse 25. So that's the first number, 187. Lamech was 182 when he had Noah. That's from Genesis chapter five, verse 28. That's our second number. So first number, math people, 187. Second number is 182. Then we saw that Noah was 600 when it started to to rain. We see this in chapter seven, verse six. So someone help me with this. 187 plus 182 plus 600 is what? 969, the exact age Methuselah was when he died. It was God's way of saying, I'm I'm giving you the warning. If that wasn't enough, how about animals marching two by two down your street? Wouldn't that be crazy enough to think, man, something, something something is about to happen here. And Noah himself, he was a preacher, according to 2 Peter, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. It took him somewhere between 60 to 75 years to build that ark. So for 60 to 75 years, Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, was proclaiming a message of returning to the Lord. So God in his mercy provides this way out. God in his mercy provides this this rescue, a way to be saved from the judgment of sins. An ark, don't miss this. An ark that would bring life. And so that ark ties us to Christmas. Jesus would enter our world and his ark would become an ark of peace. His cross would become an ark of peace and safety. Jesus enters in when there's judgment in all directions. There's wickedness in all directions. And the judgment of God toward our wickedness is appropriate. It's, it's right. It's, it's justifiable. All the judgment we receive would be right. We can't pretend, Highland, that, that, that our anger, that our self-centeredness, that our lies, that, that our lust, that, that our materialism, that our pride has no consequences, especially in the eyes of a God who is perfect in his holiness. So just as God provided an ark for Noah, so God has sent his son, Jesus, on a Bethlehem evening and 33 years later upon his cross and that cross would become for us an ark. So when you and I step into the cross of Christ, we believe Jesus for his grace and for his forgiveness and we trust him for the mercy that he is offering us, we also step into an ark, the ark of the cross of Christ. And the cross of Jesus is sufficient for our rescue. Did you notice something else? My last thing today. Did you notice something else? Super interesting. Genesis makes mention of it twice. I tried to accentuate these two places when I read it earlier. But look at chapter seven. Look at verse 17. 
It's not on the screen. It is in your Bible. 717, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. So important. The waters increased, or if you will, the judgment increased, the, the death increased, but it bore up it bore up the ark, and it, the ark, rose high above the earth. The same thing is said in the very next verse, verse 17, uh, verse 18. The waters prevailed, so judgment was prevailing. Death was prevailing, and it increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. You can write this down. If you don't want to write it down, you can just believe it. The deepest sin can't rise above the mercy and grace of Christ. I mean, that ark stayed above the water. That ark, if you will, stayed above the judgment. It stayed above the destruction. It stayed above the death. It's a powerful and consequential reminder family in Christ here today, that our deepest sin, it cannot rise above the grace of Jesus. It cannot rise above the mercy of Christ. I mean, imagine the worst sin possible. Remember your worst sin ever. And that worst sin cannot rise above. It cannot overtake the grace of Jesus. The most vile rebellion in our world today and the most vile rebellion in our hearts today cannot overwhelm the mercy of Jesus. Because Christ came at Bethlehem, because Christ died on Calvary's mountain, because Christ rose from the grave, the mercy of God is greater than all of our sins for all who would believe upon Christ. Would you stand with me please for us to pray together? Father, thank you for the reminder today that in your great mercy toward us, you have provided an ark, a cross. And for those who step into the cross of Christ, we are rescued. In that cross, we are above the death. We are above the destruction. We are above the judgment. What grace you have offered us and for those who believe in, in Christ Jesus for life, for salvation, for rescue, those who step into the ark of the cross of Jesus, our greatest sin cannot rise above the mercy of Jesus. There is wickedness around us. There's wickedness in us. There's wickedness all the time and there's wickedness over all the earth. And God, your judgment stands. Your judgment is right. We deserve the destruction. We deserve the judgment. We deserve the death. But because you are a God of mercy, you have made an ark for us. An ark of peace. An ark of safety in the cross. How grateful we are today for the Son, and for the mercy of the Father. In the name of that Son, we pray together. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs, give you an opportunity to revel in the mercy of God. Maybe for many of us today, this is what we should do, is just celebrate, enjoy, rest in 
what Christ has accomplished for us on his cross. Maybe others today, you wanna come forward because of the mercy and light of the mercy of God and just kneel here at the front and in a posture of, of gratitude, a posture of humility. God, thank you for the endless measures of mercy that you have just lavished on me. I know we feel that, we should feel that, we should know that every day, but there's just some days maybe that God's mercy overwhelms us to a point where we have to fall on our knees. And you're welcome to do that in your chair where you can come to the front and just say, God, thank you for the mercy. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the ark that you have provided us in the cross. Last week in the 840 gathering, we had two people come forward and gave their lives to, to Jesus. I wanna be a brand new creation in Christ. I wanna give my life to him. I wanna respond to, to the mercy of the Lord. Maybe there's some here today, that's the invitation. For believers, the invitation is to celebrate in gratitude. For non-believers, non-Christians here today, the invitation is to step into the ark, to step into life. And we'll have staff members here at the front if you're ready to say yes to that Christ who loves you because of the Father's mercy. Let's sing together. Won't you please come?